This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in and listens. One of my favorite guests is coming back. You guys really loved her the first time as I did. She's the founder and the CEO of Squad, an app that's built on connectiveness. She also has a fabulous new book that just came out on February 7th. There's a link on her page, Life Beyond Likes, Logging Off Your Screen and Into Your Life. God, I want to welcome the one, the only, the extraordinary, the magnificent, Miss Isa Watson, to What Matters Most. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me, Paul. So talk about skydiving. Sounds like you've been doing a ton of skydiving. Yeah, I have. So I, I'm i a skydiver. So I, I don't know, I jump out of planes at 14,000 feet for fun. But I'm also training too. So I do four-way skydiving um, with a competition team. And so we... You get a point for every competition that, I mean, sorry, every uh, formation that you make in the air until you have to deploy your parachute. And so it's just a lot of fun. You know, Um, I live in New York City, so I can't do it in the winter up here because it's just way too cold. But I'll go down to Florida, um, you know, every other weekend or so and train with my coach. How did you get started? What was the first jump or what inspired you? Did a friend invite you? Did you see a documentary? That's not everybody's jumping out of planes. Yeah. You know, I had always wanted to try it and I was, um, I was in Mauritius and I, I just, I was like, Oh, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. When I tell you I went, I did a tandem dive because if you're not licensed, the only way that you can skydive is via a tandem instructor, which means that you aren't pulling a parachute. You are, um, strapped to somebody who pulls the parachute and kind of flies you and lands you. And when I tell you that it was, I was looking at my video and it was literally the the happiest I had looked in so long and the most peaceful I've, I'd seen or felt. I was like, wow. So then I took my mom to do one. My mom is 66 years old and she was, and she's afraid of heights, by the way. So I was like, mom, let's go skydive. She was like, all right, cool. And Took her to a tandem and I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I was like, I can't have the tandem instructors cramp in my style. I got to go to skydiving school, get my license and be able to just do this on my own because I just love it so much. And, you know, as you know, throughout, you know, the book, Life Beyond Likes, et cetera, I'm really big into tapping into my joy and centering joy in my life. And that's just a place where I get a lot of joy. Isn't it super powerful to jump through your fear, literally and metaphorically, like, primal survival, but you're jumping out of a plane. I bet that helps in everything else. It does help in everything else because the reality is that you can be as prepared as you can be. You just got to go for it. Right. And so I, you know, my, my mom and my cousins, they were, they, we were, together a few weeks ago and they were saying they were like you know Isa you've just kind of always done it like they were like we were like 10 years old and you were the first person to get on the craziest roller coaster you were the first person to to jump in 12 feet water and I was like was I I guess I just kind of did it right like Nike just do it I'm a big fan in that you know you only have one life to live and I'm not gonna live it you know, kind of sitting in fear, I'm going to live it to its fullest. And whatever that looks like is how it looks. So how's the book launch going so far? Are you excited? Are you getting good feedback? 
Oh my God. So the book debuted number one on Amazon, new releases last week. And so yeah, it's, it's officially public in a few days, but quite frankly, I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of energy I'm receiving from the book, you know, the amount of excitement, um, you know, people are expressing about the book, how much it's resonating. I'm a firm believer in the fact that you can't really talk about a lot of, you know, research oriented things that are around friendship and psychology and around emotion without the intertwining of personal stories. And I was nervous about that. I was like, you know, I've been putting my personal stories out there, but like, I don't know, but you know, there, it's just, people are like, wow, me too. Oh, that happened to me too. I relate to that. I get it. And so honestly, I'm just so overwhelmed with happiness for, you know, what people are expressing to me. You, you know, it, it you know, it's crazy. <laughs> putting a book out there and the whole process behind it. And so, you know, day by day, but, you know, on the up. That's so true. And this is the beautiful part when it comes out and the echo comes back from down the valley that everybody loved it. Why did you write this book? And when did you decide to write this book? What was the impetus? You know, I wrote the book, you know, the story of my dad, but long story short, um, my parents, sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit college every year. This year, the bus ran off a straight road, flipped over and ejected both my parents out the front window. My dad didn't survive that. And it just was a point in my life where I hit rock bottom. And I, you know, it was a point in my life where I was also from a, from a career perspective, just so focused on next achievement unlocked, next achievement unlocked that I had completely neglected my real life and the relationships that brought me joy and, and some of those stabilizing forces. And so when I did hit rock bottom, it was an incredibly and exceptionally lonely place to be. And so, you know, when I finally got the, the courage to talk about this and what my truth was in, in parts of my journey, I found that a lot of people were in similar situations of, you know, feeling really a lot of loneliness um, and feeling like they are so sucked into social media and sucked into this internet life and this digital life that they've neglected big parts of their real life. In fact, I don't even know what my real life is anymore. You know, you'd be surprised about the number of people who say they have no close friends. And so, you know, I that led me to uh, leave my post on Wall Street and start a tech startup called Squad. And Squad, you know, with your squad.com, it's an app that allows you to create a world of just you and your closest friends to talk and chop it up and have fun every day away from social media. And it's only up to 12 close friends. And so, you know, I, I found that people, you know, social media is a consumption platform, not a connection platform, but people conflate the two. And so when they treat the consumption platform as a connection platform and they're missing out on the connection, it exacerbates the loneliness. So that's where squad comes in because then it really allows you to focus on the handful of friends that really do bring you joy in your everyday life. And so, you know, I, I was talking, I remember going on the speaker circuit and I was telling the origin story of squad why I created it. And it was just such a hit with people and people would all come up to me and they said, Hey, have you read a book about that? Have you read a book about that? And I was like, no, I haven't. So I was, I was at dinner one night with one of my, I call her one of my mentor friends, my friend mentors, um, Rebecca Minkoff, who's a fashion designer and entrepreneur. And I, I, I was sitting across from Rebecca and I was like, listen, Rebecca, 
people are saying I should write a book about all the stuff I've been talking about, right? Around kind of the impact of social media and, and us not living our lives. I was like, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do it. I don't know if people will care what I have to say. And Rebecca was like, nope, girl, you're doing it. <laughs> and she, I literally connected with her agent the next day and, and, you know, we hit it off and the rest is history. And so the book actually came as an idea to me from a lot of people who heard me speak about this topic, who thought that there would be such value in putting you know, a piece of work out there that really encapsulated the message. And so uh, really excited that I did decide to do it, but I, it definitely took a nudge or two. <laughs> Are you a natural writer? Because you're so verbose and super intelligent. Was it easy to put a word to the pen and the paper? I'm a, I'm a really good technical writer. I grew up in the research lab um, and writing the summaries of my research and what the big conclusions were and learning to communicate very well scientifically is kind of my root of writing. Um, I would say that my ability to express myself from a more kind of emotionally intelligent way was something I probably developed in the combination of executive coaching plus therapy plus just years of work experience. And so I would say that writing is actually one of my strengths. Um, and so it was, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't difficult, you know, from a writing perspective, it was more so synthesizing the research um, and making it make sense. Because quite frankly, you know, unlike, you know, the Brock gene for breast cancer, the research around social media, the impact, you know, friendship in the digital age is all relatively new. But I would say the writing experience was, um, it did feel a little bit natural. Was it easy for you to be this vulnerable too? Because the book is full of heart. I would say that... It is easy for me to be vulnerable with people that I know. So if you and I are having this conversation or I'm, I'm, I'm talking to my homegirl or whatever, I don't have any issue being vulnerable there because I think that vulnerability is the root of connection. You can't really have strong connection without vulnerability. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't work. What was new to me in the book is being vulnerable with a, with a bunch of people I don't know. And so... Um, you know, it, it's a little bit anxiety inducing too, because you're like, wow, I, I put myself out there. Are people going to accept that? Are people going to reject that? And as much as I talk about in the book around, you know, validation and the need to validate yourself first, I think that it's really important that we also acknowledge that we have feelings, <laughs> you know, and you, you, you'll, I'll start to see things online of like, hey, the book was great or, oh my God, this is the worst book ever, right? And so when you're when you're putting your your story out there and you're leading with vulnerability, some of those things can be a little bit scary, anticipating people's reactions. I just want to say I love the book though. It was just so accessible, and I love that you put your heart and your soul into it. And the vulnerability that you expressed courageously helped me connect more to you. I had you on, and then when I read the book, I felt like I really knew you between the two. So I think that's how the reader, if they connect to it, is going to come off with it. No, I really appreciate that, Paul. It's, it's actually really, it's really helpful to hear, and and it's it's really validating. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. How do people break their addiction to social media and the likes and the attention? You write about it in the book, but I want people to hear it across the planet who are listening. 
Yeah, I think the first thing that I talk about in the book is elevating our self-awareness around what social media does to us and how it shifts our behavior. So for example, I, I write about you know, the fact that there's so many different facets to me, right? I am, I don't know, I love to fish. I love the outdoors. I love the mountains. But, you know, the thing that was being rewarded on social media was the fact that I was this like badass tech entrepreneur, right? And that was, we get caught up in this like validation cycle. And that has then turned into excessive validation seeking behavior. And so I think that, you know, it's like, First, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge and understand, hey, this is the impact that this is having on me, right? Um, and then the second thing I will say is that, you know, it, it, the book provides, you know, what I hope people will find a very useful framework to invest in your real life offline. I think that, you know, the the whole friendship thing is really tricky these days because, Social media has allowed so many people to conflate consumption with connection. You know, I mean, even the language on Facebook, except my friend requests. We're not friends. <laughs> you were just in my, you know, calculus three class in college, you know. But I think that, you know, there's this instant gratification behavior of the internet as well. I mean, just even in just the advanced technology world, right? Oh, I can order something on Amazon and like it shows up in a locker down the street later today. Oh. Great, <laughs> you know, great. And so what people I think sometimes fail to realize is that, you know, friendship is an active investment, not a passive one. You don't just remain friends with somebody for 30, 40 years because you're like, oh, we were once in a class together and we went out and had fun a few times. And the ability to resolve conflict, the ability to be vulnerable, to be unconditionally present, to be, you know, uh, to be supportive. All of those components make up kind of friendship and relationship building offline, which I think that social media for whatever, you know, for a, a myriad of reasons has diminished the, the effort and intentionality that goes into that. And, you know, as far as, the, you know, the other part about, you know, the addiction is creating the right boundaries around social media. You know, tactically speaking, I have no notifications, not, not even just on social media, on my phone at all, um, except for squad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't, those notifications are quite dangerous in that they're triggering. They trigger our need for validation externally and they trigger our FOMO. So, you know, it started with Facebook when Facebook, you know, they tricked us. They said, hey, you know, hey, Paul, Johnny tagged you in a post, but they wouldn't show you what the post was. They made you go to Facebook to, to see what the post said or to figure out what the photo was because you you, you want to know, do I look good in that photo? Hello. Um, or, you know, Jennifer and, and 32 others liked your photo. And so when you think about all of that the psychology that 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 is implemented that goes into pulling you back in right that that they're not doing that because you feel good about all of that they're doing it because it attracts your attention and it's a little bit manipulative and so i think that you know like i said dialing it back up the the biggest thing we have to do is first of all have the acknowledgement around the topic like hey, social media is uh, impacting me this way, but I'm going to take control over it. I'm not going to let it control me. And by the way, I'm going to center the joy in my real life and make sure that I'm investing um, in, you know, the relationships that bring me joy. It's interesting. Evil Facebook too is always like, I don't have any notifications from anything either, except if I get a text or a phone call and I keep the ringer off all the time, unless someone's trying to find me. I don't want them to be lost or vice versa. 
But on Facebook, it'll say like the little red number will be like seven. So I, when I log on, I look at that. But like five of them are notifications from people I have that, you know, for a bunch of friends that are just found me through my books or the podcast. But I have already turned off. Don't show me anybody's notification like eight times and they won't do it. So then I have to individually say no more notifications from this one. But they still keep coming back. It's evil. It's it's all about engagement for them. The more they can keep you on the platform, the more they can make more money off marketing different ads in your feed to you. And so I, I'm a big proponent of not manipulating people, but providing people a tool that they can use to their benefit. But that's the, yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other topic. <laughs> you mentioned friendships too, and you had a great section on how to let a friendship go, which is very hard. People have a hard time giving away old clothes or knickknacks, we all tend to hang on to things for sentimental reasons. But sometimes a relationship, an intimate one or a friendship just sort of runs its course. I had a bunch of that happen during the political campaigns of 2015 and 16, because I suddenly thought I knew people's values better, I guess, than I did. Or we had a, you know, fork in the road and it was a bridge too far. And we had a part, I had to be the guy normally, because it just, I couldn't, relate anymore. And I tried to, but talk about, it's hard to do that, but I have a motto and a mantra that when I do that, it always creates space for new people like you and others to come in and kind of fill the void because the universe hates a void at a much higher level. It's more resonant. And then I grow and they grow and it's more kinetic. You know, I was a flawed individual, you know, in this area, Paul, because I even write about this in the book. I used to DJ Kala, you know, there's this no new friends song that he like hashtag no new friends. You'd be like, yo, hashtag no new friends. If he wasn't shoot with me in the gym when we were like 10, 15, then I don't need you as a friend now. But the reality, <laughs> the reality is that we evolve as humans. We grow, we experience all these different things in life that continue to shape us. We're not the same people. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I mean, fundamentally, I, I believe in, you know, I believe in doing the right thing. I believe in treating people with respect. I believe in, but how I navigate my life and all these different things, very different. And so um, I think, you know, I, I talk about in the book, you know, people are in your life for a reason, a season, and a lifetime. And I also talk about, you know, the concept of shame. And because, you know, when you're, because we put so much of our lives online, let's say, you know, I'm hanging out with Susie and I get a bunch, I have a bunch of photos with Susie on my IG and then all of a sudden it's switched up and it's like, you know, Rebecca over here and people are gonna be like, well, who's that? We don't know her. And I'm like, I, you know, it's so, I just think that we have allowed a lot of shame and the snapshot nature make us feel like we have to stay connected to certain people. And quite frankly, you know, there are people whose relationships, you know, with, with me, we just, we just grew apart, you know, and I think that's fine. And I don't think that's like, we don't, we didn't have a falling out. We didn't have a huge blow up, but I grew in a different way and they grew in a different way. And I, I, I honestly, and th those are conversations that I've had with people that people feel awkward about that I don't feel so awkward about. I'm like, hey, we grew apart. It's totally fine. You know, I, but <laughs> that's, you're not the energy I want around me every day. Um, and so it is, it is a difficult topic, but I think it's also a difficult topic because, you know, all the stuff that we post online creates a digital footprint and historical 
um, nature of our life. And when people see too many switch ups, they think we or we assume they think that we're just kind of weird or can't maintain things. And so, you know, there's a lot of psychological stuff that kind of goes into you know, A, the letting people go part, letting friendships, you know, run its course. And then B, um, managing our psychology around what we think people will think about that. Why do we even do social media? It's a fact that it's really, really bad for us. And especially for young people, it increases isolation, depression, eating disorders, and even suicide. Listen, social media has become such a big habit that we've developed passively you know and, and when it started out it was pretty innocuous I mean I was in college it was only college students you know mostly this is Facebook I'm talking about and um you know you would write on somebody's wall hey you know meet me in the student center at two o'clock <laughs> you know whatever the case was and and it was just whatever right but what happened over time is that social media evolved into democratizing the concept of a personal brand. And then with the like button that didn't always exist, it, it, you know, kind of made us become very psychologically attached to the concept of external validation. And then when you're on platforms where you're connected to people you don't know, that amplified that external validation because it is psychologically proven that you get a dopamine hit when it's like, hey, you know, um, Daniel and 15 others like liked your post, right? And so I think that, you know, social media was developed as a connection tool that's evolved into a consumption tool, um, you know, given its its uh, revenue model and an ad based model, but I think that, quite frankly, we just develop so much passive uh, behavior uh, around it without any kind of regard to how it made us feel. So when I think about, you know, what I liken it to, Paul, is is that. You know, I tell people all the time, curate your feed. Like, what are you consuming in your feed? Personally, I rarely scroll on social media because I'm not there to scroll. <laughs> um, but you know, if, if I, I say like, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. I love me some Krispy Kremes donuts, right? But if I sit, I'll have, if I have four donuts, each one of those donuts will taste fabulous. But after I'm like, ooh, I don't feel so good, right? That's how your social media feed ends up being a lot of times too, right? You're like, let me scroll, scroll, scroll. And then all of a sudden you're like, dang, I feel really bad about my body. I think I'm fat. I'm not as pretty as like I, I want to be, or I wish my hair was longer, or you know what? I just haven't achieved as much in life, right? And so I think that there's an addiction that was developed, you know, with the power of the algorithms that started from us just passively develop, developing an engagement habit where we weren't aware of what it was doing to us. And so that's kind of where, how I think we got here. So well said, and it's ironic you did the donut metaphor. I went over, I'm in Nashville, and there's this incredible old-time donut store called the Donut Den. It takes the will of God for me to drive past that place. <laughs> Every time I drive past, like, no, no. Last night, though, it's like cold and icy and horrible, shitty weather. And I thought, I used that. I was like, go get yourself a donut. We'll go home. We'll have some hot tea and cocoa or whatever. So I did. 
and it was delicious. And then I felt like shit. I only had one. Sometimes I'll have two or three, like you said. They have a Krispy Kremes here too, but that's fortunately downtown and out of my radius. But this place is like half a mile from where I live. Damn, that's a great metaphor though, because when you eat bad stuff, you feel crappy. And I'd never scroll because I guarantee. I will never be lifted up. Now I will look someone up, like you or somebody say, How's 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 Isa doing? How's so and so doing? I want to see what's up. But or oh, they had a baby or they're here. How's Kenya? They're over in Kenya. But I don't want to just randomly scroll through because it's designed to mess me up. Right, exactly. <laughs> Are you gonna do a book tour and travel around and see places or is it all virtual? No, I'm definitely doing a book tour, traveling around, seeing all the places. So I um I'm doing two launch week events, one with the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire magazine in New York um, on launch day and two days after launch. I'm doing one with the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone, Noah Schachman. And so, yeah, it's super exciting. We're going to be talking about creating intentional joy in your life and living your life beyond the likes. And then, you know, I have a few stops across the country, like Austin, Seattle, LA, Chicago, et cetera. But then I'm also, you know, speaking at a number of companies, you know, I'm speaking at uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. I'm speaking at Chase. I'm speaking at a number of companies too. And so, you know, I'm really excited to amplify and elevate this message. I want to turn the dial to more sad subject because I know you have some personal experience with it too. What did you think over the last week or so, what came out of Memphis with the murder of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis police? Did that really kind of bring up some of your own personal stuff from before or just in general? I know we see it countless times. I didn't watch the video. I'm not into that kind of violent porn shit. I was kind of heartbroken for a few days because it just feels like we're not getting any better. You know, and I will say this for the viewers who won't see me, but I am black. <laughs> I'm a tall black woman. I'm like the color of milk chocolate. And, um, you know, it, it was as a black person in this country, sometimes it is very exhausting and traumatizing beyond what I think that a lot of our white brothers and sisters are comfortable hearing us say, you know, quite frankly, because and, you know, I, I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So a lot of you know, very liberal, well-educated, uh, affluent white families, very, you know, well-intentioned. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, they, they I think there's sometimes an assumption that, A, you, these things only happen to people living in the hood, you know, or these things only happen like ev like every so often when it's actually pretty much an everyday occurrence. And while you may not hear about it every day and it may not make national news every day, the everyday occurrences are our cousins, our brothers, our nieces, our nephews. And so I think that, you know, one of the things and issues with social media, actually one of the top three drivers of depression oriented around social media is the um, access to excessive news. And I'm I'm in your camp. I couldn't watch the video, quite frankly. It's just, I am not in the mental space to, to see that. And there's studies that show that, you know, Black people absorb a lot of trauma and PTSD from the constant watching of those videos um, and, and police brutality. And, you know, quite frankly, I even write about this in the book. You know, I... I Again, I think that one of the worst assumptions or most misinformed, ill-informed assumptions is that this happens to 
you know, just a certain type of person or from a person of a person with a certain type of background. And that's just not true. Like I went to MIT, I went to Cornell, I went to Hampton, I'm, you know, I was a top scientist. And, you know, as, even as a teenager, I was, I was a highly decorated scientist. And, you know, I got, I, I wrote about how um, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I got snatched out of a crowd and thrown on the ground and beat up by the police in Chapel Hill, North Carolina and got arrested, thrown in jail. And people would never think that they would, they would be like, yo, you're MIT. You know, you grew up in a big house with two parents and and things like that. My mom doesn't allow my brothers to drive her BMW 7 Series, Service 7 Series. She gets really anxious because, you know, she doesn't want them being harassed and pulled over by the cops. And so I think that, you know, the, 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 Policing in this country was is actually a white supremacy organization, if, if we're being super honest, because it was really built to like kind of manage and and uh, control slaves back in the day. And I think that there's just uh, just a reform that needs to happen um, in policing. And I, I, I do think that, you know, dark skin is weaponized in this country uh in in that way and so it, it's it's very traumatizing to see it over and over again it's also traumatizing to live the experience and quite frankly when we're not living an experience of police brutality there are other things that are happening too like i was in my neighborhood wine store and there was a new employee who didn't know me but like i'm really you know i know the manager not the manager i know the owner well and you know um but the new employee just kept following me around the store when i had like, my backpack and i'm like dude, what, what is, this? you know, and this is my neighborhood wine store. I mean, he wasn't following any of the other white people around just me. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, 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 sometimes it's, uh, you're minding your mental health. Um, and it's especially kind of as a person of this demographic is, is really important. And, and social media do, usually does not help with that. With all you do and all you accomplish, how do you also carry all that weight around in that 10th degree radar for all the white supremacist bullshit you have to deal with? And yes, the police evolved out of the slave patrols, and we see it in the day-to-day -day violence. It's an instrument of violence. It's, it enforces the white supremacist system. That's why I continue to talk about it on this show, even though people never people of color but some white folks are like oh you don't need to keep bringing that up and i was like well i will i'm like i'll stop when it changes because <laughs> they're like, they're like do it. <laughs> i was like i'm gonna stop when it changes not everyone's you know i think so, through the years as the podcast grew too some of my country club invites have sort of dried up but that's okay i don't mind going downtown and getting something more uh authentic especially in terms of connection but how do you carry all that weight you know what I say? I was just talking to one of my friends about this yesterday, Paul. You know, I said, I said, most Black people in this country have a PhD in compartmentalization, right? Oh, God. And that, that's really it. Like, it's a, it's a survival mechanism because I can walk around and let a lot of this stuff weigh on me, which I'm not going to tell you that I don't have feelings and emotions that I, I need to sit with. But we also have to keep things going, right? And so there's this notion of, you know what? I know I feel some type of way about this, but I don't have the mental capacity to allow myself to explore what those feelings are right now. So what I'm going to do in the meantime is I'm going to store it away. I'm going to store it away like I pack up my Christmas tree and put it in the attic, right? 
And I'm going to come back and address it once I have a little bit more bandwidth. And I think that's kind of, that's been the name of the game. And I know a lot of very, very successful Black people, you know, across Hollywood, across the professional sports leagues, across, you know, Fortune 100, 500 companies, a number of the CEOs, it's all the same. It's all the same. Compartmentalization. And I hope you will deal with it too, because that stuff can turn into illness and body, you know, disease and all that kind of horrible things because the body doesn't forget the mind may put it in the attic but it's it's waiting to be felt unfortunately but to do it under healthy conditions and release it if you can well the one thing about me that i you know i have a really great relationship with my therapist and i'm very honest with her about hey these these things kind of happened in the past week and by the way i i reacted really strongly to this thing like my reaction didn't quite match the action let's like it should be like let's let's delve into that and sometimes it's just a trigger a trigger from some unprocessed stuff that I have, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, you know my my mentor, Tashanda Duckett, she says this all the time. She goes, Isa, it takes a village. She said, it really takes a village, right? You know, people who are part of your journey, the people who are um, rooting for you, there for you, and also providing a mirror for you when you need it. When I'm like, wow, why did I react so strongly to that thing? And I'm like, actually, I'm really triggered because I never like sorted out my feelings about this other thing that this is very, you know, tangential to. And so um, I, I don't let things bottle up in the way that I used to. I'm very good at letting, I mean, like addressing them, but sometimes it does take a little bit of like it creeped out and I'm like, wait, <laughs> let me, I gotta, I gotta catch that and I gotta deal with it. I don't know if you can ever completely heal that trauma, like with you, what you had with the police when they're around and in, especially in this country, I wouldn't feel completely safe if I was you. No, for sure not. In fact, I, I, when I walk by a cop now on the street, I kind of look the other way and it's just out of my own PTSD. Like I getting beat up by the cops and thrown in jail, by the way, jail is disgusting. <laughs> so disgusting do not recommend um and it was he he exerted so much force on me like I said I'm I'm a dark-skinned black person I am like the color of milk chocolate and it was the first and last time I've ever bruised I don't bruise like my skin color like I just I just don't bruise um and so I've always said like you know if I get robbed I'm calling my mom <laughs> you know I don't necessarily have that trust in in the system from my own experiences, you know? Um, and so, you know, it is what it is. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's it's my own reality. And I think that I cannot live a life that is true to myself and that is in my own truth, super focused on what somebody else is going to um, feel, you know, uh, about it. And so, I mean, it is what it is. Do you ever consider the James Baldwin model? Like, I think I'm going to go live abroad and my likelihood of being shot goes down by 882%. You're a numbers person. <laughs> well, you know, quite frankly, um, I, I'm Caribbean, right? So I'm originally from St. Kitts and Nevis and I'm a dual citizen. So I can hop out. <laughs> I can, you know, bye y'all. I'm out. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, I'm a skydiver and I, I love wine. And so I, I spend a lot of time in France and, you know, I don't, I think New York will be my home base, like my like anchor, but I don't see myself living 12 months in, out of the year. Um, 
in the U.S. and in New York. I, I see myself kind of hopping around. I have a 10 pound dog and, you know, me and Bax, we can just go. You could do the migratory thing. I do like three months here, four months there, three and a half there. I follow the weather, except in this Nashville instance, and it works out. And I have these beautiful communities in all these different places. And I get a different vibe, different culture. And I'm looking to expand that. I want to like have my orbit go wider and farther. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I The one thing I'll say about, I, I always highly encourage traveling. My parents sent me, I always say my parents shipped me off to Europe when I was 15. 14 years old, you know, I, um, I, I, I was, I was in North Carolina and Chapel Hill. And I, I remember telling my parents, Oh, you know, for spring break, I'm going to go down to Myrtle beach with my friends. And they, they didn't say anything to me. They were like, okay, cool. You know, we'll let her think what she thinks. And then I can't, I come home one day and my dad's like, my mom and dad are like, Oh yeah, by the way, you're going to Germany, Austria and Switzerland with your English teacher. And I was like, you did not ask for my permission. I don't want to go to Europe. I want to go to Myrtle beach. And my parents were like, girl, you live in our house. These are our rules. You're going to Europe. And, but when I tell you, like, I had been, you know, prior to like 14 to my, my, my passport photos, of my uh, my first passport photos, uh, my photo in the hospital when I was a baby, I was going on the St. Kitts and St. Thomas all the time, but going to Europe, um, and that was, you know, family, but going to Europe and, and just kind of, I did really interesting things. Like I went and explored a lot of the, um, musical side of Vienna. I went to, you know, concentration camps in Germany, which was very emotional and, and just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and just, you know, once I started to just see other people's experiences, it just allowed me to tap into a level of empathy that I just don't think I would have had, you know, not having traveled. Like at this point, I've been to 42 countries. I lived in Hong Kong and, and London, in addition to different cities in the U.S. And, you know, I, I I think that one of the biggest issues that social media has perpetuated is that, yeah, sure, everybody has an opinion, but a lot of people's opinions are kind of uninformed and there's a gross lack of empathy in the world. And when you have that with the ability of anyone to say anything, it just really makes the internet feel a little bit violent sometimes. And I just have to kind of mind my relationship with it, right? Um, and just make sure that I extend, you know, the 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 grace to myself and allow myself to kind of step back. And so that's one of the things that I think, you know, has actually been a driver of my own empathy um, development, like traveling so much and then living in, in many different, like the culture in East Asia is very different than the culture in London, very different than the culture, you know, in New York versus LA. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, we have a gross lack of empathy, empathy in the world. We're very empathy deficient, Paul. Just want to pause and say the obvious. You are so magnificent. I just wish there were more people like you in the world. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know, my therapist tells me, um, she's like, I said, why do compliments make you so uncomfortable? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, she's like, just say thank you. Just say thank you. Like, what does that look like to say thank you? <laughs> so I'm going to obey my therapist and I'm going to say thank you, Paul. I may need to see that therapist. Maybe I'll be more... Uh, <laughs> outstanding and excellent i need to talk to this person lord knows i could use a jolt uh i will invite you back again anytime you want and i want to i wanted to have you offer words of uh, love encouragement empowerment and empathy especially to the young women around the world who listen to this not all of them are, live in situations where they have the freedom that you had growing up even though obviously you had restraints because of our white supremacist system but all over the world, I get notes from people, and I'm, I'm in awe of it. I'm humbled by it. 
and I feel like this is a rare opportunity where someone who's really been through a lot, done a lot, and now accomplished a lot, done a lot of healing, learned a lot, could share some wisdom with them, just heart to heart, woman to woman. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, this, it took a lot to get here, you know, and I don't want to be, I don't want to BS anybody and, and like make it seem like I haven't had a lot of sleepless nights. I haven't had a lot of crying, a lot of pain and just, you know, just determination to sort through and, and figuring out like, am I going to really power through this? So I, I appreciate that. It's definitely been a journey. Um, and honestly, I always tell people, my therapist said this to me just this week. She said, Isa, you know, ever since I've known you, we've been working together for four years. The one thing that you said, and you've never wavered on, is that you wanted to have impact. And if this is the way that I could positively impact or inspire or empower even just one person, I'm happy. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. All right, I'm going to end the show there, mic drop, and then I'm going to re- I'm going to hang on, I'm going to recut the beginning. The second I said it, I'm like, "What the fuck?" Cuz I know I've used your name 80 times. It was just like I was so excited. Welcome Billy Watson. What? Who? So hang on one second. I want to welcome the one, the only, the extraordinary, the magnificent Miss Isa Watson to What Matters Most. Thanks for coming back on.